Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to uh, come and meet together and study your word. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would just infuse with each and every one of us a deep hunger and a deep love and a deep desire for your word, because your word is life. Not wanting to read the word of God is like not wanting to eat a meal. And uh, everybody's all too eager to sit at the dinner table and have three square meals a day. But uh, we, we fill our spiritual bellies with other things of this world that, uh, um, that doesn't last, that doesn't edify, that not spiritually nutritious, and it doesn't last long. It's a very short-lived pleasure. But, Lord, I pray that you would just give us a hunger for your word and a hunger and a thirst for purity and holiness and righteousness. Lord, draw us closer to you and draw us closer to each other through you. Uh, we lack fellowship. We lack that feeling of community and family uh, because our society has gone to a very individualistic and private uh, type age where we don't even know who our next door neighbors are anymore. And uh, Lord, we need each other. We think we can be the Lone Ranger and think that we can make it on our own. But Father, you said it's not good for mankind to be alone. And uh, you created us to be social creatures. And we sharpen one another. We edify one another. We encourage and build up one another. And there's so many lonely and hurting people in this world. Uh, the only friend they have is their television. And that's not much of a friend. So, Lord, I pray that you would just uh, knit our hearts together and draw us closer to each other as a church family and as a community. And, Lord, we think of uh, Dave and his back. And we pray that you would touch his back and uh, bring a healing there that you would just bless the doctors uh, and everybody who's involved in, in this case, physiotherapists, massage therapists, acupuncture, uh, chiropractor, whoever is dealing with this issue, that they would take the right steps and uh, that his back would get better soon and speed the healing, do whatever that they can't do. And we pray for Gerald, um, who's not feeling well, and uh, we know that he's usually faithful and uh, to the Bible study, and we pray that, Lord, whatever he's going through, that you would help him to feel better. And it is that time of year where the uh, clinics are overflowing with uh, sicknesses of due to the seasons and, and the flus and stomach bugs and things that just go around this time of year. So we pray, Lord, that you would just uh, bring him a healing as well. And be with all those who couldn't be out here tonight for whatever reason. Uh, we know things come up and things happen. We pray that you would just... Uh, uh, be with everyone who couldn't be here and have your will and your way in their heart and life and mind. And help us, Lord, as we read your word and study your word, that we know what it's trying to say to us through your Holy Spirit, and we can apply it to our lives. For I ask and pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. So the memory verse for chapter 5 is uh, verses 21 through 23, and they read, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held in the cords of sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. So it's a little, you know, it's kind of long and a lot of verses to memorize, but it's, it's, a, it's a complete thought. You just can't really separate verses 21 through 23 because it kind of all goes together. Uh, that's why I chose it that way. So we left off at verse 11. Chapter 5, and uh, chapter 5 is dealing with the pitfalls of immorality, uh, specifically sexual immorality, and how it affects uh, the future leadership of Israel. So Solomon is warning his sons against straying 
uh, and sinning sexually because it can not only ruin your life personally, but it can ruin your life politically, professionally, uh, because a, a ruler, a future king, a future ruler is in the public eye. So their sins are more, uh, more prominent, more known. And uh, I can't help but read chapter 5 and think of Bill Clinton. Uh, you can't think of Bill Clinton without thinking of Monica Lewinsky. I mean, that just kind of tainted his entire presidency, and people are still talking about it today. So verse 11 says, uh, And you groan at your latter end when your flesh and your body is consumed. So, yeah. So, uh, just to kind of recap, we'll go back to verse 7 because verse 7 begins a new thought that leads up to verse 11. So, just jumping in at verse 11 doesn't make much sense on its own. So, verse 7 says, Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from my words, the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, meaning the prostitute, the, uh, the woman of ill repute, and do not go near the door of her house lest you give your vigor to others, kind of implying uh, pimps getting your money, and your years to those that are cruel. Let strangers, lest strangers be filled with your strength, because people are spending their hard-earned money on prostitution, on false love, love that's not real or true. And your hard-earned goods go to the house of an alien, meaning a foreigner, a stranger. Now, verse 11 is where we're picking up. And you groan at your latter end when your flesh and your body are consumed. So Solomon is talking about regret, the regret of involving yourself in sin, the regret in uh, gratifying your flesh, the regret being sucked in uh, to this uh, sexual addiction. So, and you will groan at your latter end. The word groan means to mourn or to howl or to roar or growl. So it kind of it reminds me of several things. It reminds me of somebody who's in mourning, of a devastating accident or a devastating uh, um, illness or sickness that falls upon somebody unexpectedly, suddenly, and they hear this tragic news, they usually mourn. They howl and they cry and they weep uh, because they're filled with regret because uh, you know, this, this tragedy has taken them by surprise. They realize at that moment how much they lost. But it also means to howl, growl, and roar. Along with mourning, along with being struck with a tragedy, you run the gamut of emotions, and usually it's, it's anguish, and then that anguish quickly turns to anger because, you know, once you, you, it hits you of the tragedy of what you've lost, you're angry over what you've lost. You become angry because you're filled with regret and all the coulda, woulda, shouldas of your life. I should have done this or I could have done that. Because a lot of times, especially in this instance, Solomon is saying this tragedy, uh, this type of regret is preventable. Um, you don't have to go through this. And you will groan at your latter end. You know, a lot of people have regrets at the end of their life. Um, I try my best not to live with regret because I think regret is one of the cruelest and, and, and hardest emotions and situations to deal with because regret, you can't really rectify that. Especially, you know, I see family members who are fighting over some inheritance or fighting over some will or, you know, some families uh, fall apart and get bent out of shape because of something that's happened and they won't swallow their pride and reconcile things. And I remember that my father, 
was estranged from his uh, oldest son from a previous marriage. And he did everything that he could to try to reconcile and rectify the situation, but my brother wouldn't have anything of it. But my father was still filled with regret at the end of his life. At times he would sit in his chair and he would just, he would just weep. He would just cry. And he's like, I don't understand what I've done. I don't know, understand what I've done wrong. Am I being punished? And uh, so regret is, is uh, very harmful and very hurtful because especially if the person has passed that you've had the ought with, you can't reconcile that. There's, you know, it's, it's too late. There's no, you just have to live with your regret because there's no making peace or reconciliation with the other person. So, uh, and you will groan at your latter end. So at the end of your life, at the end of your life, you realize you've wasted it on riotous living. You wasted it on pleasures of the wrong things, of things that didn't last, that just satisfy for a moment, but doesn't have any eternal dividends, doesn't have any eternal rewards for it. Uh, it's a type of uh, short-term pleasure that you can't take beyond your grave. When your flesh and your body is consumed, sinning is a rough way of living. People who have lived a habitual sinful life, they look older than they really are. Uh, drugs, alcohol, uh, promiscuous living puts years on a person. I mean, I know, I've seen people in their 50s who look like they're hitting 80. Uh, they've got wrinkles on their face. They've got dark circles and bags under their eyes. They're malnourished. Their hair is, is, is white or gray. Uh, and it's not... A natural aging process you age quicker when you sin uh, because it takes a lot out of you and that's kind of what this is talking about here when your flesh and your body is consumed it says wasted or consumed in my Bible. yeah that's a good translation for it as well um, the latter end does anybody have final end or, or their final end in their translations well, the word latter end means the last reward. The last reward. And we've talked about how sin is diminishing returns. It, you know, it, it claims pleasure and it claims satisfaction, but the more you do it, the less it satisfies, the less it gratifies, the less it fulfills you. And it doesn't hold up to the, its end of the bargain or its promises. So that's what it's, you will groan, you will howl with, with mourning and regret at the latter end of what your reward is. And your reward is when your flesh and your body is consumed. That's what the reward is. And it's, it's, you know, it's kind of like for the wages or the price or the payment of sin is death. And death is, is what lays at the end of this road. So the word body uh, or the word flesh uh, here means a physical body. Uh, according to the Hebrew, it's, it's, you know, flesh, a physical body. And your body, it's an interesting word. The word body uh, means whatever is attached. It, it loosely means blood, but it means whatever it's attached to. So this body, so it, this body is attached to the flesh, according to the way the Hebrew reads. When your flesh and your body is consumed. So your body, in this instance, is connected to the flesh, and it kind of loosely alludes to and means blood. So we can say when your flesh and blood is consumed. Your flesh and blood is consumed. Now, flesh and blood, we kind of, it kind of hints about something else, too. Not just you personally, uh, but it affects your family, your flesh, your literal flesh and blood. Because people think, oh, well, you know, my sin's not hurting anybody else. And that's a lie, straight from the pit of hell. 
Your sin, whatever your private or pet sin is, is going to affect someone else. Now, I, I, there's an instance. Uh, you know, your body is the temple of the Lord. We're supposed to take care of our body. We're supposed to eat right and exercise and just treat our body well. But sadly, I know of uh, this one person who uh, just ignored the doctors. They, they buried their head in the sand, and they thought that their physical problem would just go away if they ignored it. They had high blood pressure. And they refused to take medication, refused to do anything about it. And then all of a sudden, they get hit with a stroke. And they can't use their, the right side of their body. And then they're laying in bed, weeping and crying, angry, full of regret, coulda, woulda, shouldas, thinking that they're going to die. But yet they brought this on themselves because they didn't take the appropriate action. Well, his little, uh, you know, the, 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 the issue which caused the stroke was just poor health and eating habits, not exercising, not eating right. And you think, oh, I'm not, I'm not hurting anybody else but myself. But when, those, but when his family members fill the emergency room after he's had this stroke, you see how your sin or your neglect affects everybody else. Family members are surrounding and, and concerned about this individual who just had a stroke, wondering if this is the new normal, wondering if they'll ever be well again. So your sin, no matter how small or insignificant or private you think it is, will eventually affect others in your life. It will affect not only your physical flesh and blood, but your uh, allegorical flesh and blood, your family members. And that's why sin is so hard on a community. And when sin is brought out in the open, it affects everybody else. Like, as a young person, my private sins sometimes would come out in the open and my parents would, would find out about it. And I didn't, you know, getting grounded uh, really didn't bother me. Getting a spanking really didn't bother me that much. What bothered me more than anything was my parents looking at me with those sad, mournful eyes saying, I'm so disappointed in you. I, I, I thought I raised you better. And hurting them because of what I did, what I thought I would keep a secret and private and they knew about, and how it hurt them and affect them, yeah, your sin affects other people. It's just like throwing a pebble into, into Rolston Lake. Those ripples will continue until they reach the edge of the lake, and then they'll finally dissipate. So it, it affects uh, the, the immediate circle of family and friends, your community, and it just keeps rippling outward. Uh, your sin affects everybody, and Solomon is trying to drive this point home to his sons that just a, a, a roll in the hay isn't worth all this. It's not worth it at all. So the word consumed uh, means to bring to an end, to bring to an end by destruction, and to fulfill, to be fulfilled, to be consumed. And we know that with sexual promiscuity, there's a lot of diseases that will consume an individual. Sexually transmitted diseases, AIDS, you know, one of the biggest, it literally consumes your body. It affects a person's immune system, and it makes them look like a, a, a gray, walking, emaciated skeleton. Uh, so it literally consumes their flesh and blood. Maybe this is what Solomon is hinting at. Maybe this is what part of the illusion is to this. You will groan at your latter end. You will howl and mourn at your final reward when your flesh and blood your flesh and your body are consumed when when the final culmination of your sin finally takes place when you are destroyed verse 12 it says and you say how i hated instruction other translations say how i hated discipline 
Now, this word say means to declare. It, it also means to list, to make a list. So it's like this person is enumerating the ways that he hated discipline. And what does it mean to hate discipline? It's somebody that hates a structured life. Because the flesh wants what it wants, and the flesh wants what it wants when it wants. If, if, if you get the slightest bit of hunger pangs, you run to the kitchen and grab a bag of chips. You want to satisfy that hunger right now. You have a sweet tooth and you're craving something sweet. You know, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll get in the car and go to the store to buy a candy bar. You want to satisfy that right now. You don't want to deal with that hunger. You don't want to deal with that temptation. You want to satisfy it now. You don't want to be disciplined and say, no, you know, maybe it's a, 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 you know, a bag of chips or a candy bar is okay every once in a while, but I don't need it right now. And that's one thing that we've lost in our Christian walk is discipline, spiritual discipline, where we deny ourselves. Now, tonight, as the sun goes down, it ends Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the scriptures tell us on the Day of Atonement to afflict our souls, to afflict our flesh. In other words, to let our flesh know who's boss. And what that means to afflict your soul is one of these ways is fasting. Because your body, your, your stomach is growling and rumbling, and it's like your stomach has hands and it's hanging onto your ribcage saying, feed me, and feed me right now, or I'm going to make you miserable, I'm going to make you grumpy, you won't be able to focus, you won't be able to concentrate, you'll treat everybody nasty, and that's when you step in and say, no, flesh, you do not rule my body, you do not rule my spirit, you are not in charge, I am in charge, the Holy Spirit is in charge, and I'm telling you to step down and back down. And... The way the early Christians built discipline into their lives is they would have regular times of fasting. Uh, Jews traditionally fast on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I think the early Christians or some sects of Christianity fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays. Uh, and I think fasting is a good thing. It's not only good for spiritual discipline, it's good for physical health. There is a, a, a study about intermittent fasting and how there are great health benefits through intermittent fasting. Fasting is one of the best ways to heal your body. And God naturally built that into our system when we get sick. A lot of us get so worried with our children and grandchildren. Oh, they're sick. They got a fever and they won't eat. And we try to force them to eat. But guess what? They're not meant to eat. Because God built that fasting mechanism inside us to help heal us. Animals, when they get sick, they don't want to eat. Because fasting, when you stop eating, your body is so focused on digesting, on digesting food and sending the uh, vitamins and minerals to different parts of the body and working to process that food. But when you're fasting, it's like your body says, oh, well, I don't have anything to really work on, so I'm going to go to these damaged parts of the body, and I'm going to start working on them. So he, uh, fasting is a very good and healthy thing to do. It's good for your body. It's good for your spirit. And, and it keeps you disciplined spiritually. And so we're reading about a person who hates discipline. And he's enumerating the ways and listing the ways that he hates discipline. And you say, you proclaim, you list, oh, how I hated instruction. How I hated discipline. This word hate means to person, have a personal vendetta. It means to hate on a personal level. And it means to get violent about it. And that's how much this person hated discipline. It's, it's like somebody being drafted into the military who doesn't want to go in the military. They hate it. They hate the boot camp. They hate the drill sergeant. And why do people hate discipline? 
People hate discipline because it denies their flesh. They want their flesh satisfied. They want to do what they want, when they want. They don't want any bosses. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. They don't... That, and I know people like that. In this younger generation, there are so many who are growing up. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a cycle of welfare. The, the mother and father were on welfare. They raised their kids. Their kids don't know what it means to, to have a good, hearty day's work. To how work can be very satisfying and very rewarding and gratifying. They just see how much their parents hated it, how much their parents didn't want to do it. Well, they lived off the government. Why can't I? And what do they do? They, they sleep until noon, and they eat junk food all day, and they're on the computer playing video games. They have no aim, no purpose, no goals, no discipline. They don't want to learn. And then they say, oh, I'm bored, or oh, life sucks. Because you have no purpose. You have no aim. What did God put you on this planet to do? Not to sleep till noon and play video games all day. He put you on here for another purpose. We all have gifts and talents that he's blessed us with and that we have been put on this earth to do. And some people, some people are, are, are great at organization and orderliness. And these people may make good janitors, make good cleaners. And people say, oh, that's a, that's a lowly job. No, it's a holy calling to put things in order. Because when you clean, it's almost as if you are reenacting creation. Because what did God do? He cleaned up the mess of the chaos. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Tohu bohu, obliteration and destruction. And he immediately set to put the earth back in order. So cleaning is a holy act. Cleaning is, is a godly thing to do, it's a, to bring order out of chaos. And so even if you are called to clean, you think, oh, well, that's just a very humble, lowly, I'm nothing special. No, you do a great job. If you clean, that's something great. I mean, just imagine if... if uh, well, we've seen it in, in times past on television where the garbage people go on strike. And just within a week, disease and rats and fleas and stuff are just infesting the city. Pandemics are breaking out because nobody's cleaning up the garbage. And I always try to praise Richard because, you know, he's a quiet guy. You know, he doesn't really talk much. But yeah, he's the one who comes in here behind the scenes and cleans up after us, after we've left our coffee cups and bulletins laying on the floor and our gum under the seat or what have you. And just think if he, just think if he didn't do his job. He keeps this place nice and comfortable and clean for us to enjoy and to be able to keep our focus on worshiping God instead of looking at the distraction of the mess around us. So discipline is important and having order is important. And we see that we're living in a generation that hates these things, hates a structured way of life. Hate it because it denies the flesh what it wants. And if you live by the flesh, it's a self-destructive behavior because the flesh, you know, just wants what it wants. And it doesn't really care about you spiritually or mentally or personally. All right, verse, um, okay, continuing on. And my heart spurned reproof. My heart spurned, to spurn means to cause to bubble up, to overflow, to be agitated, to be spasmed, to rant, and to rave. So this, this person hated discipline, hated the structured way of life, hated having to make his flesh obey what God wants or what the Spirit wants. And it says, my heart, my inner being, the innermost part of myself, spurned. 
spurned reproof. In other words, they were agitated. They hated reproof. They ranted and raved over it. They bubbled up. It's like pouring uh, uh, vinegar on soda. We've all seen what that happens. It just bubbles up and it just... And the word reproof means correction through argument. Somebody giving a good argument of why discipline is important. Somebody giving a good argument why they are correcting this individual. They're showing them where they went wrong, how they went wrong, why they went wrong, and the pathway back to the right track. That's what this word reproof means. For correction via arguments, or we would call it apologetics. Making a good case uh, to correct one's ways and actions. And you say how I hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. Verse 13, and I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. So verse 13, I have not listened. This word listened means to hear, not just to hear, but to obey. I've sat in a lot of classes in my life. I've gone through five years of college and even went to, uh, went to uh, another year of uh, college to get my uh, PSW degree. And I've sat in a lot of classes. And I've listened. I've listened, but I've not obeyed everything my teachers have said. Sometimes I didn't want to listen to the... I was tired. I wasn't in the mood. And I would just doodle. And I would hear what they're saying, but it would go in one ear and out the other. I wasn't taking notes. You know, so it's one thing to listen, but it's another thing to listen and to obey because in that listening process, you're listening and you're hearing what the teacher's saying, you're processing it in your mind, and you're thinking, okay, how can I make this applicable? You formulate a plan to make it applicable, then you go out and actually do it. You actually fulfill what the teacher's talking about. You obey it. And that's what it's, that's what it's talking about here. I have not listened. I have not heard and obeyed. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers. Now, the word teacher is more, and that's a Hebraic title. You have a rabbi who is an ordained minister, an ordained teacher, but you also have under him uh, a more, and he would be a teacher. So it would be kind of like a pastor and a Sunday school teacher. That's what a more is. A more is somebody who is a teacher that is skilled, that is teaching a skill. And this word more is kind of linked to archery. So it's kind of like a professor or an expert in a certain type of field. Maybe not a master, you know, as a master's program per se, or a doctor, but a teacher that's skilled, knows what they're doing. And I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, my professors, my skilled instructors, nor inclined my ear. And that word inclined kind of uh, uh, means to submit or to bow to. To incline your ear. I always picture somebody cupping their hand over their ear and leaning in and straining to listen. That's what inclining your ear is, is you're concentrating and you're listening hard and hanging on every word of your teacher uh, because you want to learn it, you want to absorb it, you want to make it a part of you. But he says, I have not listened and obeyed the voice of my teachers, my skilled teachers and professors, nor have I concentrated and strained and inclined my ear, submitted my ear. To the instructors. The instructors uh, means trained, expert, or master. It means to train, to be an expert. So if you want to be the best, you got to learn from the best kind of thing. So this would, you know, 
this is kind of like an, an example of, um, you know, because it's using archery terms uh, where teacher is more and it implies an expert at archery and an instructor, somebody who's training you to be an expert or being trained by an expert kind of reminds me of like Robin Hood teaching me how to be a vigilante, how to shoot arrows. He was the best. So you want to learn from the best, right? He could, you know, the legend has it that, uh, uh, if somebody hits a bullseye, Robin Hood could take that arrow and split that arrow in half and make a better bullseye. So that's kind of what that, what that's uh, kind of implying there. Um, okay. Verse 14. I was, I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. I was almost in utter ruin. So basically saying, I came within a hair's breadth of being completely destroyed by evil. You know, you've heard the saying, saved by the skin of your teeth. You know, or somebody saved from, from the pits of hell. They, they, they come so close to going to hell that they were saved, but they still smell like smoke. <laughs> that kind of thing. I was almost in utter ruin. In the midst of the assembly. So the word assembly is a, is a kahal, which means a called out congregation. And this implies, uh, there's several levels here. It implies a religious body, but it also implies um, a royal or military body. So you have kind of two contexts going on here. Because he was talking to his sons, who were future rulers of the kingdom, uh, this congregation was talking about the cabinet, the ruling elders of the, uh, of the nation, but it was also talking about a religious body because the way Israel was set up, you had a ruling body of elders that was like your, your cabinet. It could have been made up of your generals or your advisors in, in your royal kingdom. But you also had the Levitical priests which were involved in the rule of the nation. And they represented the, the religious authority, the religious uh, community, the religious aspect. And so we can kind of apply that to our lives too. Um, I, was, I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly, which uh, the assembly is uh, the called out congregation, and in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Now this word congregation means a household or a troop, a group of people. So again, Solomon had two contexts going on, the ruling elders and the kingdom subjects and kind of like the religious uh, uh, leaders and, and the community at large. And this passage reminds me of the Apostle Paul. That's another thing. We don't fast much in modern day Christianity. We don't talk about or hear about fasting much. And we also really don't hear much about church discipline. I think that the uh, deacons and the leaders and the elders of the church and the pastor of the church are afraid to discipline people because some people have taken their power and have abused it and have not disciplined people correctly according to the scriptures. You're to correct and discipline in love because the goal of, of discipline, the goal of correction is to restore a person from where they fell, to restore a person back to their former glory, back to where they were before they fell. But a lot of times people will, uh, these uh, churches or congregations or religious leaders will discipline or correct somebody to the point where they shame them, embarrass them, humiliate them, and tear them down and break their spirit. And then they, don't, then they wonder why they don't come back. So the discipline has to be in love. 
Uh, it doesn't mean that the person is not going to deal with consequences because you always deal with consequences. And that's one thing, and another thing that people get confused on. People think that if they ask God to forgive them, that God's going to rescue them from being disciplined. No, it's, no. You, everybody has to pay the consequences of their sins, of their crimes. And it's great that you're truthfully sorry and truly remorseful about a wrongdoing. I mean, you get pulled over by the cops and you can say, oh my goodness, and you can cry and, and clutch your chest and say, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. I just wasn't paying attention. I really didn't mean to break the speed limit. I'm sure the cop is thankful that you're, you're truly sorry, but guess what? He's still going to give you a ticket. You're still going to have to pay that fine. You're still going to have a court date. So just because God saves you from your sin and saves you from your wrongdoing, you're still going to have to pay the consequences of the sin and wrongdoing that you lived in your unsaved life. You're not going to escape that. So uh, it reminds me of a passage in 1 Corinthians about church discipline. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, oh, I went past it here. Yeah. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Yeah, it's rebuking immorality. Now see, the way church discipline is supposed to be set up is Yeshua, Jesus, already gave us the template. I think it's Matthew 15, if I'm not mistaken, where he says, if you have something against your brother, go to him privately. And if you guys can work it out and he can come to repentance, then great. If not, bring two other people with you because... The Torah, the law says, by two or three witnesses, let everything be established. This saves uh, the whole situation from he said, she said scenario. So the two witnesses could verify what was said between the two parties that were in disagreement. And the implication in the language of the Greek is to bring two people that are not intimately involved in this. They're, they're two outsiders, somebody that doesn't have an, an invested interest in the dispute that's going on, somebody that's unbiased. And if that doesn't work, then you bring them before the church. And this, a lot of times people think this means, oh, you stand them up in front of church and you just point them out and shame them and say, oh, this person did this, this person did that. That's not what it means. It means you bring them before the elders of the church. So that's the pastor and, and the deacons and, you know, the board that deals with the, the discipline issues. It's not brought out in the open in church to shame them publicly. It's still... Uh, it's still dealt with privately behind closed doors, and it's the elders of the church. And if they don't listen to the elders of the church, then just, just let them cut them loose. Let them go. Uh, you excommunicate them. You don't excommunicate them because you're mad at them, because you hate them, because you want them to suffer, because you're punishing them. Excommunication gives a person a chance. It's kind of like a, a parent saying, go to your room and think about what you did. That's what excommunication is, is and shunning is about. They, don't, they no longer can enjoy the fellowship and the closeness and the camaraderie of a church family. Um, they're to treat them cordially and nicely, but not have fellowship with them because they're excommunicated. And again, it's not that you treat them badly or mistreat them or be angry with them or be snotty and, and rude to them, but you just don't fellowship with them anymore because you leave them alone with their thoughts and you pray that the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them so that they'll realize what they did, what they did wrong, and then they will come back and, and repent and ask for forgiveness, and then they can get that into that process of restoration. That's the context of it all. So here we have the Apostle Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality 
And I thought this passage goes really well because chapter 5 of Proverbs is talking about sexual immorality, and that's what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, immorality as such of a kind that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So this is incest. Pretty gross. Verse 2, and you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done, uh, done this deed might be removed from your midst. They're acting like it, they're, they're arrogant. They're like, oh, our congregation's fine. There's nothing wrong in our church. There's no sin in the camp. They act like it never happened. They're ignoring the elephant in the room. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I wish, in, I wish you in spirit with the power of the Lord uh, Jesus, I have decided to deliver one, uh, such a one to Satan, to the enemy, to the adversary, for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved. If they fall on hard times, they may realize and recognize uh, and are tormented by the enemy and tormented by their sin. They may understand what they've done and repent and turn back. Um, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So this is talking about spiritual pride and arrogance and just ignoring sin. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as in fact, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote, uh, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And he clarifies what he means by this. I did not mean with immoral people of the world or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. So he's talking about immoral people within your church family, immoral people within your congregation, not immoral people of the world. You can't escape immoral people of the world. You'd have to live like a hermit, right? So we're to, uh, you know, we can associate with immoral people in the world because we hope that by our testimony and by our influence, we can win them to the Lord. But when there's immorality inside the church, we don't associate with those people. And sadly, I have actually had to shun uh, and a well-known individual at one time uh, because he would not repent and confess of his sin. And he was in church acting like everything's okay, nice suit and tie, wanting to shake my hand. I'm like, hey, dude, I'm sorry. I, I want nothing to do with you. And, of course, he got offended, but I can't help that because to fellowship with him and to shake this individual's hand would be a partner to his sin. It would be me ignoring what he did, ignoring his sin, ignoring his guilt. That was obvious to everybody, but he acted like nothing happened. Uh, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an Im immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Don't even have a fellowship meal or a fellowship dinner with them. Don't even invite this person out to eat. Just totally shun them. For what I have, for what I for what have I to do with judging outsiders? So a lot of times people will say, 
Well, Bible says not to judge. Bible says not to judge. Well, you know, we're, we're, we can judge ourselves, but we're not to judge outsiders. You know, they're not a part of our church family. They don't really truly know what right and wrong is according to biblical standards. We don't judge them. We're not a part of them. We just let them be and let them do what they do. And hopefully our love and our influence and our friendship with them will show them the light and show them the right way. And the Lord will open up a door of witness and opportunity for us, for them. So it says, for, um, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? So we have an, a, a mandate and an absolute right to judge people in the church. But Jesus warned us and gave us uh, instructions on how to judge. Uh, Matthew 7, 5, 7, 7 says, judge not lest you be judged. People want to stop there. But you go on and it says, because the way you judge another person is the exact way they're going to judge you. So you got to be careful how you judge somebody because when the tables are turned, you're going to be judged in that same way. So is it a fair judgment? Are you judging fairly? Are you judging righteously? Are you judging by the word of God? Or are you just jumping to, to false conclusions? But those who are outside, God judges. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Don't worry about the drunkards, drug addicts, homosexuals, whatever, outside of the church congregation, the adulterers, etc. God will deal with them. God will judge them. It's not our place. They're not part of our community. <clears throat> but if that takes place in our church, we have a right to call it out and call that person on the carpet, call them out on the carpet and deal with that situation. But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And I also want to read uh, chapter 6. Verses 9 through 11, which says, or do, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And such were some of you. Whoa! Listen to that. He just had a big list of big-time sinners and big-time sins. And then Paul said, as such were some of you. So he's saying that the people that are in Corinth, that are in the Corinthian congregation, he said that some of them were unrighteous, that some of them were fornicators, some of them were idolaters, some of them were adulterers, some of them were effeminate, which effeminate is kind of, uh, we could say maybe a transvestite, a, a drag queen. And then it says, nor homosexuals. So people say, I was born this way. Leave me alone. You're judging me. I was born this way. No, God didn't make you that way. Because Paul here says that the people in the uh, Corinthian congregation, some of them were transvestites. Some of them were homosexuals, but they weren't now because they got saved and they accepted the Lord. And then he says, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, verse 11, blows me away. As such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. How were they sanctified and justified and washed? They repented of their sins. They recognized that it was sin. They recognized that they weren't created that way, born that way, meant to do those things. They seen and understood through their conscience and through the word of God that it was wrong, and they repented and changed their ways. As such were some of you. 
All right, let's go back to our Proverbs. So verses uh, 15, verses 15 through 23 kind of uh, switches gears here, and it's talking about uh, as opposed to sexual immorality and uh, hanging around loose women. Uh, verses 15 through 23 is actually talking about um, marital fidelity and the blessings and the benefits that come through a faithful uh, marital relationship. And so Solomon uses a lot of illustrations and analogies here, and some of them will be pretty, uh, pretty obvious as we go. I'm almost thinking maybe I should just stop here uh, and just complete, try to complete 15 through 23 next time we meet because I'd sure hate to break that up. Uh, because it is a is a really good passage, and we could really get into um, what it means to be uh, uh, um, faithful in a marriage and in a relationship, and why there's benefits to that, and why it's so holy and pleasing to God. So I think we're going to stop at verse 15, and we're going to cut class a little early tonight, and we're going to pick that up next next go around. So let's go ahead and uh, close with a word of prayer. Father, it's so easy to play church. It's so easy to get sucked into the Christian culture. You go to church, you hang out with other Christians, and before you know it, you're dressing like them, acting like them, speaking the same language. We have our own lingo. We have a language called Christianese that we speak and we can understand each other, that people on the outside don't really understand. And we can fool ourselves in thinking that we're okay because we're keeping up with the Christian culture, but yet we're not really keeping up with the Word of God. So, Father, as we read your Word, help us to know what it's trying to say to us. We can under understand it and apply it to our lives and not fool ourselves and say, oh, well, I've read it, I know what it says, and go out and not even do what it says. Does not James talk about that, how the Word of God is like a mirror? And we look in the mirror and turn away and immediately forget what we look like. Your word reveals the ugliness and the sin that's in our life. Just like a mirror when you get up in the morning can show you if you got food in your teeth from the night before, your hair's disheveled, your eyes are bloodshot, you need to comb your hair and wash your face and brush your teeth and floss. It's showing you how to correct what's wrong with you. And the word of God is the same way. We look into it and we see what's wrong with us. We see the sin, but sometimes it's so disturbing, we want to immediately turn away and act like we didn't see it. And we want to turn away from it. But Lord, hold our chin and make us look, deeply look into the Word of God and really ask ourselves, am I really doing what the Word of God says? Am I really living up to God's expectations and God's instructions? Am I really walking in the footsteps of our Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, by walking and following in His Word and His example? Or am I just living the Christian culture and thinking that I'm okay? Lord, I pray, God, that you would just help us to be serious about our faith. Lord, that uh, you would help us to be bold and brave and fearless when we witness and talk to other people. I just read a tremendous quote from Gillette Penn, the magician in Las Vegas of Penn & Teller. He is a, you know, dyed-in-the-wool atheist, but he says, I appreciate Christians coming and witnessing to me and pro trying to proselytize me because it shows me that they're serious about their faith. And if they truly believe what they believe, if they truly believe I'm going to hell— then it's out of love that they come to me and try to win me. That just blew me away, an atheist saying that. So, how, Lord, help us to be bold and brave and not be afraid to talk to our family, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers. 
that you would help us to be truly concerned about the destiny, the eternal destiny of their soul. And Lord, in our own personal life, we're so, we're so spoiled. Lord, people, people hardly talk about prayer anymore. They hardly talk about fasting anymore. I mean, when's the last time that, that a congregation called a public fast, the whole congregation to pray and fast? Lord, we're so used to comforting our flesh and coddling our flesh and making sure that we're comfortable and not in pain and not, not uh, uncomfortable in any way. But Lord, we've got the wrong focus. You didn't come so that we might feel good. You didn't come so that you could tickle our flesh and, and tantalize our flesh. You came to give us life and more abundantly. But sometimes we've got to whip our body into shape and make our body submit to what your spirit wants. I pray you would help us to see the importance that we are a trichromatic being, that we are body, soul, and spirit. And if we don't take care of one, we're neglecting the others as well. We've got to look at them as a whole and, and take care of ourselves spiritually and mentally and physically by eating right and by, by exercising. And Lord, it would do a lot of us, most of us good. It would do us all good if we would just ever once in a while get a little serious and say, you know what, I'm going to fast today. I'm going to take it slow. I'm just going to not eat breakfast today. And maybe the next week, not eat breakfast and lunch. And maybe the next week after that, maybe fast a whole day. And dedicate that to soul searching and to prayer. Because, Lord, prayer is powerful. But fasting is like adding rocket fuel to, to the mix. It just takes it up another notch and another, another level. And in spiritual warfare, even Jesus said himself when the disciples prayed and tried to cast out this demon, Lord, why couldn't we do it? And you did. He says, sometimes there's certain ones that will only come out through prayer and fasting. And we've lost the art of fasting. We've lost the art of disciplining our bodies and disciplining ourselves. So, Lord, challenge us to get out of our comfort zone. And to get out of the Christian culture lifestyle and get back to the basics of your word. To live according to your word, not according to customs and traditions. To get back according to your word through reading your word and through prayer and through fasting. And getting serious about our faith. And getting serious about those that are around us that are dying and going to hell. We talked about regret tonight and the regret of sin. I don't want any of us losing a close family friend or loved one and then just regretting, I never told them the truth. I never told them about the Lord. And if they're in hell, it's partly because of my fault because I, I didn't say anything. So Lord, give us the boldness. Our churches are empty because we've become fearful. Our churches are empty because we're no longer serious about our faith and about our walk with you. Lord, help us to fall madly and deeply and passionately in love with you and in love with your word. Remind us of how it was when we first got saved and the, the exhilaration and the freedom that we had in that, Lord. And just challenge us to draw closer to you and get back to you. Father, forgive us of our sins of commission, things that we've done that we shouldn't, and our sins of omission, things that we know that we should be doing but we're not doing for whatever reason. Lord, challenge us and may your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts this week and convict us because conviction is a good thing. You said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. If we feel condemned, that's Satan. That's the enemy. That's his earmark. But if we can feel convicted, that's of you, God. You convict us because you love us. You convict us because you want us to change. You convict us because you want to see us do better, and you know that we can do better. And Lord, so conviction brings about the catalyst for change, where condemnation just beats ourselves, makes us beat ourselves up. And we know that's of the devil. 
So, Lord, convict us with holy conviction. And may we repent because we will not see revival until we repent and get serious about you and your word. Thank you, Father, for every single person that was out here tonight that was able to make it. Bless those who, for whatever reason, was not able to come. And I pray that you would just touch their hearts and their minds and their bodies and make them well so they can be back among us again. And, Father, we love you and we praise you and we give you all the glory for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.